Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today we have Trina Tsideros with us, who leads HRI's Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina. Thanks so much, Ben. Great to be here. Well, thanks for being here. We got uh, some, some great stuff to cover today. One of the things I think our listeners have probably gotten used to is that we don't just talk about what's going on inside the U.S., but also what's happening around the world. And today we have a, a couple of issues on that. Let's start with a global look and kind of a comparison of how we look compared to other countries around the world. What is that doing right now, Trina? Yeah, sure, sure. So we're in the last few weeks of October, months into the pandemic. And we're starting to get a good look at what different countries' experiences have been so far. And I think that the takeaway, if you look at the data, and what data I'm looking at is those compiled by the Financial Times, which produces this and and makes it available for free, not behind a paywall. So if you're interested in looking, go take a look. But what they looked at was death rates during the pandemic versus historical averages and total excess deaths during the outbreak, again, kind of compared to historical historical averages. And what you see, sort of if you look at it from country to country, is a wave of deaths far outweighing historical averages in many country, country after country after country. Although there are some outliers. So there are some countries where the wave was extraordinarily high and some countries where which saw almost nothing compared to historical averages. And so some of the countries that have had you know an enormous increase include Peru and Ecuador in particular, if you look at sort of across the globe. And then some countries that had very little in terms of an increase in excess deaths, Iceland, almost no difference compared to historical averages this year so far. And Norway, additionally, just a little blip above what is expected historically. But if you look at, say, Peru, the increase is 156%, according to the Financial Times, compared to historical averages, which is really a true crisis and something that would be felt very widespread in in Peru. In the United States, we also have had quite a surge, and according to the Financial Times, excess deaths during the outbreak, um, an increase of 24% over what would be expected historically. I just want to point out, you know, it doesn't get a lot of headlines about the pandemic, but if you look at it in terms of measures of excess mortality, for instance, total excess deaths per million people or total excess deaths or total excess deaths relative to historical average for the same dates. Peru tops those lists in a lot of ways. They are tops for total excess deaths per million people, and also for total excess deaths relative to the historical average for the same dates. Peru, then Ecuador, and then Italy, UK, Spain, in the US is, is up near the top as well. But I think this is sort of points out how, you know, the headlines have focused on some countries, but really, uh, if you look at Peru, they've really, they've had a, a very tough time with the pandemic for sure and, and deserve some attention. It'd be interesting to see exactly what happened there. I'd love to see more coverage of that. Well, there's some that have had very few excess deaths as well, right? So maybe what, what are some of the countries that we just haven't seen those kind of blips than, that we have in others? 
Yeah, I think Iceland kind of stands out in terms of having gotten control of the pandemic very quickly and then managing it to the point that really, at least according to the data collected by the Financial Times, really has not seen you know a true surge in, in deaths due to the pandemic or during the pandemic. So also Norway, like I said, just uh, you know a a definitely an increase over what would be expected historically, but not an enormous increase. And again, Norway put in some measures early on. Lots of comparisons have been made to Sweden, its neighbor, that took a different approach. And so you see the impact in Norway being pretty, you know, minimal compared to other countries. Of course, any death is really unfortunate, but compared to other countries like, say, Peru, the experiences are really starkly different. Let's turn our attention now to another subject. And I want to go back to some previous discussions we've had on the podcast about how to look at studies and how, you know, there's always new studies coming out that are looking at things like, you know, medical countermeasures and vaccines and treatments. And we've had a new one that has come out recently from the WHO, the World Health Organization on remdesivir. Could you give us a little bit on what that study now is saying about remdesivir. Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the big questions that physicians have had is with these therapeutics is, okay, we we seem to have some options available to us to treat our patients in the hospital, but do they work, right? Are they safe? Do they work? In whom do they work? For whom would they work the best? All of these questions and We've been waiting eagerly for the results of these randomized controlled trials on these treatments. And I think that these two, there are two studies that came out, you know, within a few weeks of each other on remdesivir and they found in some ways opposite things. One of the trials seemed to find evidence of its usefulness in treating patients in the hospital. And the other one, this new one, the WHO Solidarity trial, seems to have found a lack of evidence for that. And so this leaves clinicians with essentially still more questions. The World Health Organization Solidarity trial was a multi-arm international trial of five different interventions along with a shared control arm. So they were trying lots of different kinds of treatments and then looking at them compared to control and then looking for evidence of efficacy overall. And so this trial was pretty massive, included more than 400 hospitals, 30 countries, more than 11,000 adults. And what it found in the end is not, not a signal of usefulness in hospitalized patients versus control. So in other words, the outcomes in terms of mortality for remdesivir were the same essentially as if they got no remdesivir. They also looked at hydroxychloroquine, the drug that got a lot of attention at the beginning of the pandemic versus control, no sign of efficacy there. Lopinavir also versus its control, no sign of efficacy for that. And interferon, same thing, no sign of efficacy versus control. So a lot of kind of bad news in terms of these treatments for out of this trial. So I think the question is, okay, we have these two trials for remdesivir. What does it mean? One one seemed to find some positive news, the other one did not. And I think what it means is that we need further trials. And there are further trials going on for remdesivir that will look at it and hopefully give clinicians a better sense of whether it's useful or not. And I think even more important, for whom is it useful? At what point in illness 
this isn't useful. It's an antiviral agent. So maybe it is more useful early on in someone's illness and not so much once they end up in the hospital with a lot of other issues. So that's those are some of the questions that the clinical trials that are underway hopefully will answer. But until then, I think it's still a big question mark around this particular treatment. So sort of along those lines, talking about therapeutics and the vaccine development, you know, I think a lot of attention has been given to the possibility of an emergency use authorization coming from the FDA for one of the candidates sometime this year, early next year. But one of the big puzzles that still is being solved is what happens after the EUA, the logistical challenge of distribution of the vaccine and the supply chain issues that are involved with the vaccine. And I think, you know, one of the things that we have looked at at HRI are these questions. And I wonder, Ben, if you can talk a little bit about why is this an issue and, and, and why is this something that's so important to, to think about? Trina, I think you hit on exactly the right point, which is really there is a difference between developing a vaccine and then actually vaccinating people. I mean, there's a, a big journey between those two points. And, you know, the report that we developed here in HRI actually is titled Developing COVID-19 Vaccines May Not Be Enough, Turning Vaccines into Vaccinations. And, you know, one of the issues that we looked at, if you go back into very recent history and you look at the H1N1 vaccine, there was actually a gap there in between how much was needed in terms of demand and how much supply was readily available. And that gap is the gap of the logistical supply chain. This is kind of the unsung hero of vaccinations is it's not just about developing the vaccine, but it's also about how are you going to distribute it and how do you make sure that supply actually meets demand. And in fact, in our research, we actually projected out some scenarios if we don't have a good match between supply and demand, we'll actually have more deaths that could have been prevented. And so really, that's what was so important for us to take on, you know, this research and, and publish around it. And we, you know, we did some primary research with surveys of pharmaceutical and health industry leaders and worked with a really large team of, of industry experts that work up and down the supply chain on some of their thoughts around this. So I think one of the big questions, especially with some of the leading candidates for the vaccines, is how do you transport them and store them? Because they're not similar to influenza vaccines. They can't just be sort of turned onto that well-worn path that we all know of, of influenza vaccines. They need ultra-cold storage, a couple of these. Can you talk a little bit about that? What, what does that mean? What does that mean for distribution? That's right. I mean, the, it, it is. This is not, you know, this is not just like getting a pizza delivered, right? Or, or something of that nature. There are several vaccines that are in development that have very cold handling requirements. So anywhere from two to eight degrees Celsius, but all the way to negative 80 to negative 70 degrees Celsius. So you know, this is not your normal freezer temperature that you have in your household. Now, to clarify, not all the vaccines that are under development are in this category, but some are. And so the supply chain has to start preparing for this type of distribution, which could have ultra cold storage. And we're just going to touch on this, right? This is kind of a little bit of science for non-science majors here. There's a lot of detail around it. But if you start to kind of pick apart what that means for storage at kind of the wholesale level, the bulk level, 
transportation at those ultra-low temperatures. And then you actually have storage at the point of delivery of the vaccine itself or the injection of the vaccine to consumers. And you start to get into questions of, you know, how many times can you open the container before the temperature goes too low. And so you really start having a lot of logistical issues around how you're housing it, how you're transporting it, and really even at the point of delivery, what you need to do to make sure you keep the vaccine safe. So this is something very different and it's something that has to be built in. And of course, many companies are already starting to think about this and work on this. And of course, you know, governmental entities as well, but this will not be the typical vaccine distribution route if the vaccines that require ultra low cold storage temperatures are the ones that are ultimately used with the patient population. And then I think there's another challenge, which is you can get the vaccines to the people, but will the people take the vaccine? And so there's a lot of thinking that should be done around people's preferences and overcoming skepticism, meeting people where they are. Can you talk a little bit about that? What do we find about that? Well, I think your phrase, meeting people where they are, is the key for this one, Trina. The people have different types of preferences. We've seen over the course of the pandemic, this massive new use of things like virtual health options. You know, over 17 million Americans have used virtual health for the first time. But we've also seen people use more urgent care clinics, retail clinics, freestanding ERs. Our survey data shows that all of these have greater use. What that ultimately means is consumers are very used to having their are starting to get more used, I should say, to having healthcare where they want it and at their convenience. And so if we want to have a very successful vaccination program, we're going to have to have a multifaceted method of distribution. And so that could be our, our retail pharmacies may be part of that, our worksite clinics may be part of that in our, in our workplace. We have to think about people that are in long-term care facilities and the healthcare workers themselves and how we know where they are and, and get to them. And there's other issues with the vaccine as well. Some of them that are in development actually require more than one dose. And so you then have to be able to track who's gotten the first dose of which vaccine, who needs the second dose of which vaccine, and where that's all going to happen. And you also alluded to something which is definitely on the minds of everyone, and that's vaccine hesitancy. And the key there is we see some of these consumer surveys showing that people are saying, I'm not as confident in the vaccine as I was before, I don't know if I would take it. Well, obviously, we have to round the corner on that. And we have to build more trust in the community. And probably the key word there is community. How do we actually partner, have the health system partner with community organizations to get at some of these harder to get at patient populations, whether they're people who maybe don't have homes or people who are in communities that are mistrustful of the health system. We have to find a go-between there that can build trust and we can get to those patient populations. So all this makes me think that the need for analytics is really pressing, that we need a very sophisticated way to sort of track where to send vaccines, how to send it, when to send it, you know, how will it get to all of us. And so I think advanced analytics sounds like it's an important piece of this as well. 
Well, that's right. And I think when we say advanced analytics, it's really about connecting all the dots. Like, let's let technology help us with some of this, right? And so some of that can be helping with having a more consumer-centric vaccination program of let's use some predictive analytics to figure out where people are, where it's most convenient for them. There's another part of analytics, though, as well, which is let's make sure that we really close that supply-demand gap. If we send a lot of vaccines to an area where people don't need Need them, then that's, you know, those are potentially wasted vaccines. So it's all about matching up supply demand all along this chain and having electronic tracking of all of this material, this very precious material, once a vaccine is approved, is going to be absolutely crucial to know where the vaccines are and what state they're in. Are they at the right temperature? Are they being handled correctly? Did they go to the right person? Is there a secondary follow-up that needs to be done? Did that go to the right person with the right vaccine? So we're going to have to rely on technology to help us with this. It's going to be absolutely crucial. So I think this will be another, you know, it won't be necessarily a first. I mean, technology has been used in the past, but nothing to this scale. This is a scale beyond anything that we've seen before in recent history in terms of the needed vaccination program. And we're going to have to rely on on technology to help get it right. So very important stuff on the vaccine front. We're going to probably have to wrap there. Let me just mention, though, for those of you that want to drill down more on what Trina and I were just talking about in terms of vaccinations and what that looks like, we have the full report available on our website at PwC com forward slash HRI. I want to thank Trina for giving us the global overview and an update on some of the trial readouts that um, we've seen over the last few weeks. So thank you for that, Trina. My pleasure. And for our listeners, thank you for being with us on another episode of Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.